Well, it's a joy to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, and hopefully you do, uh, let's all turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and this morning we'll look at verses 1 through 12. As you find your place uh, there, let me just say a word of thank you to Dr. Patterson uh, for the invitation to be here. Uh, my wife and I, we are uh, proud to be a part of the Southwestern uh, family. Uh, we are proud of our time here uh, and being able to come. God shaped us. Uh, it was the best of times and the worst of times. And uh, what I mean by that is I, I sat where you sat and wondering uh, how to pay bills at times and, and wondering what was next uh, for us and, and sort of living in uh, that, that uncertainty. Uh, but we're here today as a testimony to, to God's goodness and to God's faithfulness. And I'm honored to stand before you to see uh, men such as uh, Dr. Matthew McKellar. And then I, I find out that uh, Dr. Patterson is still putting up with Dr. Tommy Kiker somewhere in here. And uh, God help him and, uh, uh, and, and taming that man. So amen to that. Well, this morning, uh, as we look at our text, uh, I want to talk to you about two things that it comes when pastoring. I am, uh, I've been pastoring in Ovilla, just south of Dallas, for about five years now. Before that, uh, I'd served in various roles and had been in full-time ministry for about 12 or 13 years. Um, and uh, one of the comments I, I got just this morning and, and got recently at church is, you're a little, little young to be a pastor, aren't you? And, uh, and that is certainly true. I'm only 34 uh, years old and, uh, and still learning each and every day. Uh, I used to have a beard, and I shaved my beard recently, and uh, I was sort of accosted by one of our senior adults. Uh, told me uh, that they don't like being preached at by an 18-year-old, and I need to grow facial hair uh, back out again. <laughs> And so uh, I just told him to take it up with my wife and, uh, and preference, and uh, we'll go from there. But uh, hopefully you found your place. Uh, let me read the text for us, and, uh, and then we'll dive right in. Our time is short this morning. Paul writes to the church, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, and he says the following. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God, amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority, but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our lives because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witness and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we have been towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Pray with me. Father, we pray that you would bless the teaching of your word. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your presence. We ask now that you would invade our midst, that you would allow us to surrender to your call for our life today to change and be conformed into the image of your son. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Donnie had a secret. It was a deep, dark secret. In the summer of 1975, Donnie sat 
quietly weeping at the end of a movie, crying in tears. At the age of about 45, he, he watched this movie in silent. He watched this movie alone by himself. And it brought him to this place where, where he began to cry and he began to weep. Donnie's secret was a profound one in, in many sense. But before Donnie got to that movie auditorium in 1975, Donnie obviously had a prior life. The movie that he watched that summer was the Disney classic Bambi. Now, I don't know if you've all seen Bambi, but if you haven't or you're not aware of what it is, let me just briefly explain what the movie's about. It's about the loss of a mother uh, and the overcoming of obstacles by a young fawn named Bambi. And at the beginning of the movie, Bambi's uh, mother is shot. She is killed. And Bambi falls to the ground in this uh, scene of exasperation and, and emotional turmoil and trial at, at the mother's death. And, and the character in the movie called it Father Forrest, and which is really Bambi's dad, begins to whisper to Bambi, get up, Bambi, get up. Get up, Bambi, get up. Now, I had long as a, as a child had wondered who in the world would, would shoot Bambi's mother. And I was confused about this for a long time until the fall of 2004, when I ventured onto the campus of Southwestern Seminary and happened to walk by Dr. Paige Patterson's office. <laughs> and I was convinced in that moment that the caricature, the hunter in that movie was none other than the culprit, Dr. Paige Patterson himself. <laughs> so I allege that you were that man, sir. Whether he was or whether he wasn't, it still doesn't give us an answer and the reason why young Donnie sat there crying and in tears. In Donnie's previous life, before he ventured in the movie theater, Donnie served in the United States Marine Corps. And he served in the Marine Corps for well over 20 plus years. Donnie had a knack not just for serving in the military, but actually developing soldiers and preparing men for battle. And at the time, he was the youngest drill sergeant to ever have been appointed to the position that he served. He was a master in taking young boys and turning them into cold-hearted killers. Eventually, our country became inflamed in the Vietnam conflict, and Donnie found himself there serving with the men he had trained, leading with certain responsibility. And in Donnie's course of serving in the military in the Marine Corps in Vietnam, he, he was wounded several times. He was bayoneted by what he thought was a, a dead Vietnamese soldier. He was shot in the head once, in the leg, in the knee once. He was shot in the groin. He was bayoneted. He was, uh, took shrapnel wound in the, in the stomach from mortar fire and from grenades, and he still lived to tell the tale. Throughout Donnie's storied military career, he received over three Purple Hearts, one Bronze Star, and was promoted over 13 different times in the United States Marine Corps. But that still doesn't answer the question, why would Donnie find himself in a movie theater in 1975 crying as the credits began to roll as Bambi came across the screen? You see, Donnie's secret was a secret that he held quietly to himself for well over 20 years from the men that he served. In those moments in Vietnam, Donnie later described that in those moments when he was down and out and wounded and, and those wounds appeared to be fatal at times, it was his recollection of not the movie Bambi, and not the, the phrase, get up, Bambi, get up. 
You see, for Donnie, it was something more than just identifying with those words because Donnie was in fact the young boy that played the role of Bambi by the man by the name of Donnie Dunnigan. He was Bambi in that movie. And his secret in 1975 was released to the world because it was the first time that Disney had ever released the names and the credits of the actors that had served in that movie. So before that, no one knew except those closest to him and, and near to him that he portrayed this role. And yet now his secret was out. But as Donnie began to reflect on his life before his passing, uh, he began to talk about, people would ask him questions like, what was it that caused you to persevere? And, and what was it that made you to, to conquer those mountains that were before you in the, in the time of war? And his statement was simply this, that no matter the circumstances or no matter the obstacles, it was this, this hidden voice within his heart. It was this get up and get moving, keep moving, keep taking a step forward and, and keep pressing on and keep pressing forward. As ministers of the gospel, Though we don't find ourselves at times in physical combat, we find ourselves certainly in times of conflict. We find ourselves in the midst of adversity. And thankfully, God in his goodness, he gives us a word to remind us of how we are to respond in times of conflict. And so in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul really divides this text into two categories. One, he talks about the motivation of the pastor in difficult circumstances. And then he talks and transitions into the measure of the pastor. What is it that makes up the sustenance of the pastor, the character, and the principles that he's built upon? So if you look with me down in the text, and it begins in verse one, where Paul writes the following, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you. One of the first things that we glean from Paul in this text is, is in pastoral ministry, adversity and opposition will come. Adversity and opposition, in fact, go hand in hand with being called to ministry. Difficulty follows those that follow Christ. I'm ashamed to say that Five years ago, I'd been in ministry for a long time, previous before I became a pastor, but I thought moving to a villa, I would certainly be the exception. And I thought that I would walk in and, and things would be easy and, and, and they would accept me and be welcoming of me. And, and don't get me wrong, I, my church today, I love my church and they love us. I'm so very grateful and humbled to be the pastor of a Villa Road Baptist Church. But it wasn't easy. In fact, it was, it was paved with difficulty and opposition even at times. But I want you to notice how Paul begins to speak about the church. He begins to identify the church of God as the brethren. As a young pastor, as a young student pastor before this and serving in other roles, I would go to, to conventions and go to with the state or the national level and, and I would hear pastors sort of on the side or at breakfast or at lunch in these times of just informal gatherings. And, and often the thing that I would hear from pastors is, is this overwhelming sense of opposition that they face and really this sense of, of complacency or really complaining about the people that they served. And they would talk about in a demeaning way uh, the deacons that were adversarial to them or the leadership of the church that was against them or, or how that if they just had better people or, or were serving at a better church, they would be able to do the things that God wanted them to do. And oftentimes I would just put my head down and I would shake and I understood what they meant and I identified with what they meant. But, but what those men had done in that time is they were letting their circumstances control their calling. Verses one and two of, of this chapter teach us that we should not let our circumstances control our call. 
So I'll tell you a little bit about, about my circumstances without being too specific, and maybe you can identify with this or not repeat the mistakes that I made. My wife and I first got to a villa. Our chief prayer was this. God, would you purify us as you purify your church? Would you make us holy as, as you help us make the people around us holy through your word? And, and, and if there's sin in the camp, Lord, would you expose it? And would you help us operate as a healthy church that, that is rooted and centered in the gospel of Jesus? And, and so we prayed that for a while. We began to lead our staff and, and our leadership to pray that prayer. And all of a sudden things began to happen. And for the life of me, if I had to do it over again, I don't know that I would pray that prayer in the way that I did because I began to experience conflict. I began to experience opposition and, and, and just to, to give the rundown of this, and I think this is common in lots of churches and, and friends that I have in ministry that are dealing with similar things. Um, I had uh, individuals that were in leadership that were habitually locked into things like pornography. Teachers of the word of God that habitually just succumbed to sin on a regular basis. And it wasn't just that they had let sin beat them. It's that they had come defeated by it to where that sin had become normal in their life and okay. And the sin had been relegated as just a struggle that everybody goes through. And it was this minimization that, that we shouldn't talk about those things and, and pursue the holiness of God. I watched as, as spouses that, that served on staff at the church um, committed adultery and were unfaithful to their, to their spouses. I watched as, as things were exposed, uh, um, misappropriation of financial funds and, and money laundering and, and, and opposition and, and, and folks that would just tell me to my face, Pastor, you have no right to call us to repentance. Who are you? And I'm not speaking in hyperbole to you. These were real comments made by real people. Who are you? My response in those times was to sometimes let my circumstances get the best of me. It was sometimes to focus on what was immediately in front of me and the lack of affirmation or even the affirmation and leaning too much into the good or to the bad. Spurgeon was right when he said that the pastor must have one blind eye and one deaf ear. And when opposition comes and rumors find their way to him, he must turn that eye and turn that ear towards that which would incense him. Opposition and ministry go hand in hand. Not only do we see that, that we should be careful to not let our circumstances control our calling, that we should endure faithfully. He says, following after verse two and verse three, he picks up and he says, for our exhortation has not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. What Paul's essentially saying is, listen, don't preach to tickle the ears of the listeners. You're not loving them when you're dishonest with them. And I would say the caveat to that is you're not loving them if you're a jerk to them either. You can stand on principles and you can stand on truth, but you don't have to be mad at the people that you preach to. There's certainly a pastoral tone and an awareness and a sensitivity to those things. And we can confidently stand on truth and we can preach and we can proclaim that truth, but we shouldn't gear messages and we shouldn't shape sermons so that we can make people feel better about themselves. It's one of the reasons why my wife and I appreciate so much Southwestern Seminary. 
and, and the stance on the inerrant and infallible sufficient word of God. If it wasn't for um, our understanding as a couple, the theology of the word of God, that God has spoken both in content and in form, and it is my job as a, as a pastor, as a preacher, as a prophet of the word to speak and relay that information in the way, not just in substance, but in, but in form as well. And to speak that to the people with passion and to compel them and, and to be persuasive, but, but not to do it in such a way where, where I'm hoping just for affirmation. I can love my people so well that I can deceive them at times as a pastor. And trust me, the, the easiest way forward is often just to tickle their ears to, to hope that I have the right illustration that, that tugs the heart, that stirs the affections. And that danger is present each and every Sunday. The, the danger of pragmatism and results and getting people down front apart from the spirit of God at work in their heart. That danger is real. And part of our jobs as ministers and part of why you were here today, and, and maybe you felt like I did when I was here, that I was just wandering around in the desert, like wondering when the end was gonna come so that I could, I could get a job and, and go on and begin my ministry. And, and what I, I look back in my perspective of that time, our, my wife and I both, is, is that it was a time of, of pruning that we needed in our life. It was a time of, of refinement that, that I didn't even realize to the extent to which I needed it. Because I knew that, that when I stepped into that pulpit and, and God entrusts me with those people, that it's, that it's so easy, that it would have been so easy, that it that currently could be very easy to teach and preach in such a way that it tickles the ears of my hearers. But there's a warning here in verse four that I wanna show you and bring out. Notice where he uses the word approved and he uses the word examine there. Those two verbs are, are key in understanding the text. They're, they're both put in a perfect tense in the Greek meaning that there was this, this moment in time where, where God approved us, he called us, he examined us. Yet with that moment in time where he does that, that's finite, it, it moves into the future. And so God has approved us once in the past, but he is still approving us. And so what it says to us from the approval standpoint is that when we preach and teach, when we share the gospel on the mission field, when we love our deacons and our leadership and the people that God entrusts us with, we are doing it as one that is working to, a, to be approved, not by them, but to be approved by God. Knowing that he has examined us rightfully and thoroughly. And get this, that word examine in that perfect tense means this. He is still examining us. Your initial call to ministry doesn't mean necessarily that you will always be qualified to minister. You can lose that Right, and Paul speaks to that here in just a moment. But he tells us to examine. He tells us to look and, 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 to, and to see and to know with this ongoing sense. To put it simply, God is saying this. God is always looking at our hearts. When I was in seminary in the middle of Greek and Hebrew class, I didn't always understand that. I didn't always get that. What I mean by that is that seminary, at times for me, maybe you don't struggle with this, at times for me was just intellectual pursuit. And I had missed that. It wasn't that anybody had conveyed that, but it was all about head knowledge. And it, and it was less about heart work. And the, and the problem is you, you've gotta have both. 
You can have all the knowledge in the world and have read all the books in the world, but I promise you, the moment you step into church and you begin to pastor people, they don't care that you've read all those books. Should you read all those books? Absolutely, 100%. I took Dr. Patterson at his word to have well over 1,000 plus books in my library by the time I graduated. I immersed myself with everything I could read and get my hands on. I bought it. I would have to apologize to my wife later saying, we don't have money to go out to eat this week because I just bought a $50 book. Don't do that. <laughs> but we immerse ourselves in those things, but, but ministry is also about the heart. God is the one who examines the heart, therefore we should examine the heart. We shouldn't preach to tickle ears in verses three and four, but I also want you to know in verses five and seven, he gives us this principle that, that we shouldn't focus on building our kingdom, but we should focus on building God's kingdom. Look with me in verse five where it says this, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Jesus Christ, we might have asserted our authority. What Paul is saying there is this, he's, he's not minimizing the, the use of, 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 of words. In fact, he tells us elsewhere in, in the book of, uh, to the letter of uh, the church in Corinth, he says, listen, to be persuasive with your speech. Focus on what you're saying and, and how you're saying it, but, but don't do it and, and try to impress people with your intellectual knowledge. Don't, don't do it from, from, from that framework. Don't begin there. We never came with flattering speech, nor did with a pretext of greed. We didn't seek our glory. Too many people go into ministry to build their own kingdom. They go into ministry to build a name for themselves. They go into ministry to seek recognition. Some of, not all, but some of the most insecure people I've ever met in my life are in ministry because they're always seeking verbal validation from men. And so therefore, it leads to this posture of, of being scared to stand on truth and to be principled. So we as, as men and women of God, however we serve the church in whatever capacity that is, we have to remember that, that our aim is not seeking glory from men but it's seeking glory from God. It's about honoring him. One of my, my favorite men to think about and to talk about and a man who, who, who helped me tremendously um, when I first became a senior pastor was the man by the name of Charles Simeon. And it's a name that every preacher ought to be familiar with and ought to know him and understand him. Not, not so much he had tremendous preaching and, and he is one of the, the, the greater British homileticians to have lived. He's done a great service to, to homiletics and, and to evangelicalism, but, but he was a, a man who uh, understood what it meant to endure in conflict. What I mean by that is, is after he graduated from Trinity, he was assigned to be a deacon at Trinity Church. And so a deacon was assigned in that role, and so he'd give the opportunity to preach. And, and so he was assigned, assuming that he'd be given the opportunity and the blessing to be the afternoon lecturer at the church. Only the church did not want Charles Simeon. They didn't care for him. And so get this, for five years, he was denied the privilege and the right to stand in the pulpit at Trinity Church and to preach God's word. Now some would say, well, Mr. Simeon, sir, that is a sign from God that you need to move on. It's a sign from God that you need to go elsewhere and use your gifts and use your talents elsewhere for the kingdom, but Simeon stayed. He stayed for five years, never been given the right to preach from the pulpit, to do what God had called him to do. Now, after the five years it ended, 
and the appointed lecturer uh, resigned, Simeon assumed and thought, well, I'm up. Now's my time. Now's my turn. And, and after the fifth year, he still wasn't given the right to preach at the church. In fact, the parishioners hated him so much that, that there are instances described in church history where um, they locked him out of the church. The janitor gets the keys changed so that he can't enter the building. So Simeon finds a way to work around that, and it just, lo and behold, they had um, sort of boxes and pews that would lock in that would be particular to those families, and so he got access to the, to the went to the course, got access to the sanctuary, and, and the parishioners just decided, well, that's fine, you can use the auditorium, but we're going to block off all the seats, and your people that come to hear you, they will never have the opportunity to sit down, because we're going to lock them out. So what does Simeon do? He, he goes and grabs chairs and he puts them in the aisles and he puts them in every nook. And so here they come and they begin to listen to him and they begin to respond. For close to 12 years, he did this. 12 years in the midst of conflict, 12 years in the midst of, of difficult circumstances. Why would he do such a thing? I believe that Ian Murray gives us some insight to this where he says that, that Simeon, in a sense, knew what long-suffering meant. Simeon had the, the long view in mind. He understood that ministry wasn't a sprint. It wasn't a 5K. It, it wasn't a savage race or, or any of those races. It was a marathon. It was an ultra run. But there was this long view that he had, and, and Simeon stayed. He committed his life to the people that, that he served, and he served Trinity Church. Get this. He, he was there for 12 years, never really given the opportunity to be the pastor, yet he stayed and endured and overcame, and eventually he won the hearts of the people that God entrusted with him. He served as that pastor for 49 years. That's, that's who we need to strive to be. When opposition comes, it doesn't need to be that, well, we're just gonna talk, tell and turn and, and go look for greener pastures. We need to patiently, faithfully, with kindness and compassion, endure with our people, preach truth to them, and, and enter into their pain and enter into their suffering. But you can't do that if you're trying to build your own kingdom. Paul goes on in verse seven, he says, we prove to be gentle among you. That word gentle in the Greek, there's debate whether it's you know, to be gentle or to be translated as baby, but we prove to be a baby amongst you. One little word difference. I believe it's best translated as, as gentle, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but also our lives because you had become very dear to us. I want you to notice how Paul speaks about his church. He speaks about it with this pastoral tone and heart because he's a man who has decided he's going to enter in alongside the people that God has called him. Too often I have found pastors who have chosen to remain distant and void from the people that they preach to. And instead of preaching with them and, and alongside them, it's this constant preaching at. It's this preaching devoid of a relationship with them and really knowing their people. Pastors who stay for years can, can sometimes be guilty of never actually knowing their people. Listen, if you are called to ministry, you have been put in the relationship business. This is what you do. Oftentimes we as pastors joke around and we, and we say things like I've said, that if, it just, if it weren't for the people, think of all the things we could get done. We could accomplish so much if it wasn't for the people. 
The truth is, the people, that, that is our ministry. That's who God has called us to. Those who need to repent, the wicked, the shameful, those that are harsh, our harshest critics, God has called us to them, to embody the gospel to them, to, to endure alongside them. But it certainly takes a, a sense of maturity to be able to do this. I didn't always understand this, and I didn't always get this. I, for the longest time, I used to view people, if you didn't agree with me, you were an obstacle to crush. <laughs> and I know I'm intimidating, right? I mean, I know I'm fearful, but you listen, you didn't, you didn't get on board, then you just need to get out of the way. Part of what I saw God do in my own heart, part of what I've seen God do, is he, he began to, as I've been able to see sin persists in the life of other people, very, very outwardly exposed sin. Here's what it's done to me, is every time I've watched that in my church, it has brought me back to this inward position where it is, Drew, where is the sin in your life? Watching sin get exposed is never fun, but it always should lead us in our own personal life and our own personal journey to this place where, where God, where, where is the pride and the self-righteousness in my life? What do I need to get right before you as I watch my brother or sister? I don't delight in watching them fail. I want to, to be with them and to encourage them. But what Paul understood was that he needed to be authentic. He needed to be available to his people. And it took a mature person to be able to do that. God requires maturity to be in pastoral ministry. Whether you're in education or an admin, whether you're in student ministry, it requires maturity. And what is maturity? Maturity is about how you live your life. It's, it's possible for many of you, like it was for me, to be theologically astute, to know all the answers that the Bible would ask, yet to be extremely immature with people and to be extremely immature in your relationship. It's possible to be biblically literate and be in need of significant spiritual growth. I know that's not the hope of the seminary and, and certainly not the aim, but it is certainly possible as we begin to come puffed up with knowledge and information that, that we are in need of great growth and great pruning. But I believe that, that in verse eight and, and following, Paul teaches us that he, he came to Thessalonica, not, listen to me, not for what he could get, but he went to Thessalonica for what he could give. His motives were pure and his love was selfless to serve those people. You will only be as authentic with your people in public as you are in the private times of your life in, the, in your relationship with God. Let me say that again. You will only be as authentic with your people in public as you are in your relationship with God in private. You cannot lead people to places that you are not currently experiencing or have been. You can't talk about relationship with Jesus if you have none. You can't show them and embody what that looks like and preach with compassion and, and mercy and all of those things that God calls us to if you are not constantly grooming and cultivating and recalibrating your heart towards the things of God. I happen to be preaching through the book of, of 1 Samuel right now at our church. And I actually ended this past Sunday with, with the chapter that we, we just read. And one of the things I just shared with, with our folks that if you've been in chapel, you, you might grasp the enormity of this in the text. But one of the things that, I'm, I'm, that most depresses me about Saul and that I think that we are often in danger of is that we confuse proximity to God with intimacy with him. 
In other words, just because I'm near the things of God doesn't necessarily indicate that I'm experiencing intimacy with him. I can take you up and and I can show you like at a zoo what God is doing in the activity of God, but just because you're near it doesn't mean that you are having activity with him. Saul knew this well. Paul knows this well. And so it's why he speaks about this embodied hermeneutic, this embodied gospel that he, that he lives out amongst the people, that he shares his life with these people. But he also gives a warning in verse nine. He says, for you recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Now, in Paul's time, and it's uncommon now, so it's sometimes of a miss, but but typically in this time, everybody had a vocation that they filled. There were no, uh, very rare to find full-time vocational ministers that were supported full-time by the work of the church. So everyone typically had a trade. For Paul, it was tent making. He worked with leather in his hands. Jesus was a, was a carpenter. And, and so he would, he would embody and do those things. He would be a tent maker, but, but his full-time job was, was being a disciple maker. He, he lived to, to plant churches and to evangelize. That's discipleship. And so his, his tent-making ability, his vocation in that was, was simply to support his actual vocation, which was evangelism and discipleship. Whatever it is that you do or we do or we lead our people to do, let us lead our people in such a way that they're not doctors and, and lawyers first, they're, they're not accountants or stay-at-home moms first, that they're evangelists. They're disciple makers first. And whatever it is that they do to bring home the money, that just supports their calling to live on mission with God. We need to teach our people, our students, our children emphatically to blossom where they planted and to bloom exactly where God has them. And what verse nine says to us today is, listen, you cannot hide in ministry. If you're running from something in ministry, it, will, it has a way of experience exposing you so quickly. It's a fearful thing, but it's a real thing. I agree with the late, uh, great Adrian Rogers where he says, let us not sacrifice our families on the altar of ministry. I don't pretend to speak for millennials or generation wise or wherever it is that you find yourself. One of the things that I see that concerns me often with millennials is this, is we often are guilty of using our family as an excuse not to do ministry. And I think somewhere there's a balance. I think if I love God properly and I put him in the right perspective and I rightly understand him, my kids, my wife, my family, they're gonna understand. There are times where I'm gone, I can't be there. Now, if I'm loving God and really loving them, I'm gonna make sure that I'm, I'm giving them the energy and the attention that they deserve on the back end. But what, I, what I'm seeing is we've even hired new staff at our churches and, and we've not hired people because they've just put their foot down and, and that I won't let ministry get in the way of family. Well, I, I, I'm sorry. We're not asking you to sacrifice your family. We're asking you to be a good dad first, but don't let your family become an excuse to be lazy or not do anything, to not evangelize or disciple. You are in the relationship business. Relationships take time to cultivate and to groom. And Paul knew that. He worked hard at what he did. He had a passion for what he did. But in conclusion, in verses 10 through 12, in those previous verses, we, we see the motivation. And here, I want you to see the measure of it because he, he speaks about three things just, just rather quickly. He says, you are witnesses and so is God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you. Just as you know, we are exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own. 
so that you would do what? What's all this for? What's the purpose in, in all these things? So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. Walking worthy before God. Is there anything better than, than to have a clear conscience before the Lord that you're following in full obedience, that you're trusting in him and, 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 and yearning and desiring him? What is better than that? To not have a conscience that, that is seared because we are inoculated with, with sin and the things of this world. Listen, you can't compromise God's integrity, but you can certainly scandalize your own. God's kingdom will not be thwarted whether you mess up or not. But, but as, I, as I get older, even though I'm young, but I, I see these men that have stayed faithful in the ministry for 50, 60 years. And there's been no moral failure. They've, they've, they've loved their wife. They've loved their kids. There's been no scandal in their life. And, and you see the increasing demands of the world. It, it, it's amazing that God has preserved those men and those women. And I, and I pray that, that that is true of me. And, and Paul sort of gives this sort of guideline to do that. He says, listen, you're witnesses and so is God. We've walked devoutly and uprightly. The late New Testament scholar Lightfoot simply says this, that, that devoutly is, is speaking about the holiness before God, uprightly that I'm walking rightly before the people of God. I'm blameless. I have integrity and character in my life. I've entered into their suffering, but, but yet I'm undefiled from the world. Listen, God doesn't need just another person that feels called to ministry. What God needs are men and women that are committed to being set apart from the world. He needs men and women that, that are committed to holiness, that are committed to righteousness, that are, that are committed to being blameless. And that means we can't cheat on tests or exams. We can't take shortcuts in life. That we have to be men and women that are, that are full of courage, that are full of principle and understanding and that we know God's word in and out, that we think it, but we also feel it, that our, our heads and our hearts are engaged in those things so that we will be blameless before him. I believe that we have forgotten that pastoral ministry is war. That may sound harsh, and I don't know how you respond to that, but pastoral ministry in whatever capacity you serve is difficult. I don't wanna beat that down because I wanna say this to you, that even in the midst of the most difficult moments of my life, hardest moments, the loneliest moments, the darkest moments. In being able to experience those things come the greatest joys that I have ever experienced in my life. Because I get, you are called to serve the church. That's why we're here. We, we are here to bring glory to God and we are here to serve the church. And so we love the people of God. And so what God is looking for in this manner of walking worthy, he's looking for men and women that are living on the promises of God, that are consumed with the holiness of God and that are evangelizing in the power of God. And that we believe that God is still saving people. We believe that, that God is still doing that. And that maybe, maybe we haven't experienced that because we haven't taken that step forward to, to be fully committed, great commissioned people. People that are, that are committed to, to seeing the lost come to know Christ for the first time. 
I find it interesting that in the context of chapter two, in verse, in the ends verse, chapter one and verse 10, he says this, wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. This is the gospel message that we get to proclaim. Listen, we have been entrusted with the greatest, most important, most significant news. And I realize I'm preaching to the choir, but I'm maybe more or less, I'm preaching to those that are here today that your head's there and you know that, but your heart's been cold towards that idea. In my head, I know that to be true. But even as a pastor, I have to calibrate my heart towards those affections on a daily basis. And I have to cultivate that and work at that and have people speak me to that and, and, and yearn that and build that into my life. The fundamental battle of pastoral ministry, it's not the culture. It's not who's president. It's not the struggle with difficult people. It's not even people that blaspheme the gospel. It's not the fight for success and, or programs. It's, it's not any of those things. The war of the pastor is a deeply personal war. And that war is fought in the battleground of our hearts and what we desire and what we yearn for. It's a, it's a war of values. It's a war of, of our allegiances to him, of our motivations to God. It's about these little desires that we have to, to believe lies that the, the, the pasture is greener on the other side. I believe this, the battle of the heart, is, is one of the greatest threats to every pastor. Certainly those that have been educated at such esteemed seminaries such as this, and you have the head you understand and you know and you get the doctrine, but, but I'll tell you, there is, there is more and more a, need, a greater need for doctrinal clarity now than there ever has been. I'll end with this story. I've been pastoring in a villa for about two years, started preaching through the gospel of John. If you're familiar with John's gospel, you know that there's seven I am statements and, and those I am statements, they build uh, sort of in their dogmatism. They become more emphatic and more clear about the exclusivity of Jesus. And he starts off with, I'm the bread of life. And he ends with like, I am, like I'm it. And I noticed that as I was preaching through this, it took me two years in essence to get through John, but every time I'd get to these I am statements and every time I'd get to these places about the divinity of Jesus and, and that he was God, there was a man in my church that had been there for about 15 years and he would just start squirming. Everybody else was as still as you are. He, he would start shifting his weight like he had back pain or had to go to the bathroom or something. And one day he approached me and I could tell he was upset. And I said, what's going on? Let's talk. And he began to tell me how, how wrong I was to, to say that, that, it was, that Jesus was the only exclusive way to heaven. That I was wrong in saying that, that Jesus saying he was fully God and, and yet fully man. That's a wrong belief and I shouldn't speak that from that pulpit. So I set him up and we had some many hotly debated counseling sessions and, and here's what I helped him discover. Born and raised a Baptist, but his belief and his assumptions about, about Jesus were purely and strictly Jehovah's Witness. And his belief, as he began to articulate it, and I began to help him articulate what it is that he believed and why he was saying the things that he did. And so I had before me a 15-year church member, a grown man with kids, who was an unregenerate church member. He did not believe in the exclusivity of Jesus. There were other ways for him. And I have found in my church and in others, there, there are countless of people in the, in the established churches that, that do not know Christ. 
They have made false assumptions about who he is. And so our job in pastoral ministry is to help correct those. It's why we need seminaries like Southwestern and we need doctrinal clarity. My hope for you this morning is that you would recalibrate your heart, that you would reorient maybe your affections and do the heart work. You're you're not just gonna get through that today. It, It takes work. It takes time and it takes wisdom from godly people that are loving Jesus. My hope is, is that, that God sends out of this room and this building, he sends men and women who are, are passionate about the things that God is passionate for. And that we check our motivation and we check our character and our sustenance and we, and we go and love God and we love people well and with excellence. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the one that examines our hearts. You are the ones that show us our sin. We're grateful that in your gospel, God, even as seminary students and students of your word, that you never leave us in shame. You never leave us in condemnation. But you tell us there is freedom in your word and, and there's joy in your word and Though pastoral ministry is difficult at times, Lord, it is is one of the highest and greatest honors. We pray for a generation of young and old who wherever they find themselves, they'd be passionate about fulfilling the Great Commission, be passionate about lost people that don't know you. That we would would live for those people unto that end, that, that we would glorify you in the process. God, help us examine our hearts. Make us men and women who walk in a manner worthy of the way in which you have called us because you are worthy, God. Because you are worthy, we can find worth because you have deemed us worthy. We pray in Jesus' name.